I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week is the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl accident. So disasters and how best to respond to them are very much on our mind but we'll also be hearing about the latest discovery of dry ice on Mars and why the release of carbon dioxide has a cooling effect on the Martian atmosphere. Scientists have recently found large chunks of frozen carbon dioxide, also known as dry ice, near the south pole of Mars. The findings may offer a new way to study global warming. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My colleague Andrew Jack, FT Pharmaceuticals correspondent, is here with me. And so is Jeremy Farrer, head of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Vietnam. He's involved in a new Centre for Disaster and Medical Humanitarian Response, which the Chinese University of Hong Kong has set up in partnership with Oxford. Jeremy, tell us how much common planning and preparation can be carried out for different types of emergency and how the process could be improved. It's a huge challenge, as uh, as your question alludes to, but one which we cannot uh, just ignore. My personal interests are in infectious diseases and rapidly emerging problems in terms of health. But I think there are some much broader parallels which need to be drawn with with other disasters because they share some common features. The difficulty to predict them, the speed at which one needs to respond when they arise, and the need to learn from your mistakes and conduct research in a very rapidly emerging problem. And we have structures and systems for, particularly in health, but also in other disaster areas, which are based on long-standing approaches to this. And yet, in the modern world, the speed at which things can happen and the requirement to respond much more quickly has changed the way we need to deal with these and we need to face up to them. And what will the new centre in Hong Kong do to try and help us face up to them? Well, as you know, Asia is a booming region of the world at the moment, huge population. From Ho Chi Minh City, if I fly in any direction for three or four hours, I fly over 50% of the world's human population living in very close confinement. And yet there is very little regional training opportunities, research opportunities, focus for disaster preparation, but also, crucially, disaster research and response to disasters of whatever type they are. How would you rate the response in Japan recently to the earthquake and the tsunami and then the nuclear emergency? And the response not only of the Japanese, but the rest of the world who tried to help? Bear in mind, I'm an expert in infectious diseases, not in in earthquakes. But to an outsider, 
and I've not been involved in the response in Japan directly. The Japanese, I think, have responded with phenomenal dignity and, and organizational structures. But even in a country such as Japan, with its infrastructure, with its preparation for nuclear disasters, you can see that,、uh, and with its long history, you can see how there are still lessons that could be learned. The response, not just in the Im- immediate aftermath of what happens, when there's an often either a government, non governmental, international response to the region. But often the problems then go on for considerable lengths of time afterwards. And, and actually, it's not just about the acute period, it's about what goes on in the subsequent weeks. Andrew is well aware of that because he went out to Haiti earlier this year for the first anniversary of the earthquake there. And I think you found very much the continuity, the need for continuity. Yes, and of course, the big debate, and we've had a, this humanitarian review that was released by the government very recently in the UK, talks about, doesn't it, this eternal challenge of the desperate need for prevention. We hear about it in health, but it applies to all these humanitarian and natural disasters too. But there's really a, a lack of willingness, always, isn't there, by the international community and by governments very often to invest in advance. So they end up having to sort of cope with the cracks afterwards. I mean, do you think there's a, there's a new impetus at the moment, new thinking about how to tackle that and shift more to more responsible prevention planning? Well, I think prevention planning, yes, is, is crucial. And we've seen some of that. Japan, for instance, there's probably no better country on earth prepared for the events that they have terribly suffered from. But I'm not sure the second bit of your question has been yet put into place, which is preparation is one thing, but then implementing those preparations and, and, and the lessons from both the recent events in New Zealand and in Japan, I think, bear that out. Plus, the recent events in those two countries has got to also be put into the context where most emergencies occur, which is in much less developed. Countries and systems who, who don't have the infrastructure or the finances to deal with something、uh, like the New Zealand and Japan have been able to. So, would you say the implication is then not just early investment, but a lot of what simulation exercises, ways to actually really think through how to implement in practice? In fact, it, it may even be more fundamental than that, in, in that one of the、um, bits of all of this discussion that we leave out,、uh, and I can understand why, as you said, there's an urgent need to act. But research is a critical component of that, and learning the lessons of that, and, and ensuring that you gather appropriate information to allow you to be better at the next event. Now, I think we have got better, but there are still unfortunate examples, like a, a, the British team that went to Japan and, and actually didn't have the paperwork in place, so actually had to come back again. These are unfortunate events which, which with, with better preparation and better lessons learnt, could, I think, be avoided. You'd hope they would be avoided. To what extent is there now, and should there be, an emergency corps of medics if we, if we take the sort of medical perspective on disasters and emergencies? I mean, we hear about Médecins Sans Frontières going in. I mean, to what extent can we improve? MSF have been phenomenal, I think, over decades now, and、uh, they have responded, and people, similar organisations, they're not the only organisation, but they're, of course, the best. Known、uh, and I think they've been responded phenomenally well, but they and I believe、uh, that their approach is changing. They have、um, integrated more documentation research elements into their response, but you come across some challenges. You come across challenges of organization, you're trying to respond. In an emergency, but you're talking about doing research, which sometimes is seen as an esoteric、uh, luxury one can、uh, add on to things. When, and there are huge ethical dilemmas about conducting research in these、uh, situations. But I think it's critical to do this. 
because there's no doubt that for whatever reasons we are seem to be facing more of these emergencies and they're on our television screens and in our newspapers on a daily basis now so there's a more moral imperative or there's a pressure to respond more than they used to be. And you talked Jeremy about um, obviously the challenge for particularly some of the resource poor nations in terms of preparation because of the costs and the other challenges they have but I guess flu is quite an interesting example where quite a lot of even the poorer Southeast Asian nations were very active weren't they? Do you, do you start to see more generally that sort of level of commitment and investment now in health and in some other areas of disaster preparation? Yes, no doubt that after the coming of bird flu in 2004-2005 and the great global response to that, things were put in place which had never been there before. And there was huge investment and, and inevitably some of it perhaps was not well directed. But there has been a dramatic improvement. There's been a improvement in the way the WHO, World Health Organization, have established uh, their responses. And there's much better infrastructure across Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, in terms of responding to infectious disease alerts. But that's a continuous process. And the challenge is to maintain that level when the threat goes away. Do you think the money was largely well spent and justified? Money largely well spent, that's a tricky phrase. I think without spending the money that was spent, it actually is difficult to spend things efficiently sometimes, especially when you've got relatively large amounts of money being made available by all sorts of organisations, including the Asia Development Bank, World Health Organisation, World Bank, etc. It is sometimes difficult to ensure that that is well spent and efficiently spent when it's in a system which is not used to coping with large amounts of money. Should we have invested that money? Then I think we should have done, and, and I think we're better prepared for pandemic 2009 influenza than we would have been in 2004-05. And the community has changed so that we're not there yet, but there's a much greater willingness to share information globally and between countries and between regions than there ever was in the past. One aspect of this, which you'll be aware of, having come into this emergency work through pandemic flu, is how open or otherwise the country is where the emergency is happening. If we look back to Chernobyl, of course, in the old Soviet system, they were totally closed, our outside help, and as a result, and they made a real mess of things and killed people who need not have died. And they also completely showed a total lack of transparency. China was also accused of lack of transparency over SARS, as well as some forms of flu. How open are countries now, do you think, to the outside world, not only coming in to help them, but also finding out about what's going on? I'd like to say, and I think it is largely true, that there's been a, a, sh- a total a paradigm shift in the way uh, China's a very good example, uh, Vietnam's a good example um, uh, of... Uh, in 2004-2005 with the coming of bird flu there was and SARS before that uh, there was a degree of uh, not of transparency and of not willingness to share data. I believe that has changed out of all recognition now so that we work very closely with China Uh, we in China have shared enormous amounts of information over the last uh, two years in terms of uh, pandemic flu and other emergency uh, infectious disease and humanitarian responses and the centre in Hong Kong you mentioned is I think a, a coming example of that. I think there's been a, a huge shift. Whether that applies to every country I don't know. I think the fact that the United States was very open in 2009 about the pandemic, I think that actually has helped hugely uh, they made the information about the pandemic available freely. Uh, it was on the internet. Uh, there was never any question of them hiding data or holding back data. And that set a precedent, I think, that, that would be very difficult in the future for a country to, to avoid. 
Good. Well, on that optimistic note, let's move on to our monthly contribution from AAAS and its journal Science. Over now to Nadia Ramligan in Washington. Thanks, Clive. Scientists have recently found large chunks of frozen carbon dioxide, also known as dry ice, near the south pole of Mars. The discovery paints a picture of Mars as a much dustier, wetter planet that contained almost twice as much carbon dioxide as it does now. The findings may also offer a new way to study global warming. Planetary scientist Roger Phillips from the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado explains how his team found the dry ice using radar results from NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. This is a radar, so what we can learn from the radar are electrical properties of materials, and we find a way to solve for the what's called the permittivity, or essentially the intrinsic capacitance, or dielectric-dielectric constant of material, and found out that it corresponded exactly with dry ice. And so that's how we came to the conclusion that there's a large volume of dry ice. Your study found that all of this trapped, frozen carbon dioxide can melt and be released at certain periods, effectively doubling the amount of carbon dioxide in the Martian atmosphere. What does this mean for the planet? That there would be much more intense and more frequent dust storms on the planet, and it also means that water would be stable against boiling over more locations on the planet. So it's a completely different climate system than is presently operative on Mars because of the increased CO2 on in the atmosphere. This is how Mars operates today, not how Mars operated in in the ancient past. As a greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide has been studied extensively for its role in global warming on Earth. Why is it important to study carbon dioxide on Mars? A couple of reasons. First of all, the atmosphere is almost entirely carbon dioxide as opposed to Earth, so it's a contrast. Things about Mars in our climate simulations is that we actually double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the temperature actually goes down. People interested in global warming will say, aha, they double the atmosphere, double CO2 on Mars, and the temperature, why did the temperature go up? Boy, wasn't there a big greenhouse effect like the people claim for the Earth? And the answer is it's a completely different system. And there is a greenhouse effect when you double the warming, when you double the CO2 in the Mars atmosphere, but also means there's more CO2 in the ground at over larger areas, and it's actually a cooling effect, which offsets the warming effect. So it's a way to understand a, a system, how CO2 operates in a system completely different from Earth, and how the physics of the equilibrium between CO2 solid and CO2 gas really affects the climate. So it's an interesting contrast to the Earth. That's planetary scientist Roger Phillips from the Southwest Research Institute. For AAAS, I'm Nadia Ramlagan. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Nadia, and thanks to AAAS and science. So, here we have another illustration of the complexities of atmospheric physics and the paradox of a greenhouse effect that seems to cool the planet. Meanwhile, here on Earth, the political momentum is ebbing away from political action to tackle our own build-up of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is warming things here. Jeremy, are you at all concerned about climate change as a contributor to disaster and disease? Yeah, there's no doubt that with climate change, allied to other events going on as well, which are often neglected, environmental use, land use, and particularly in the part of the world where I live, in Asia, urbanisation, movement of people, migration, I think these collectively, along with climate change, are going to have dramatic impacts in different ways, in different diseases, and in different emergency situations, access to water and and other events. So yeah, of course, these will have huge ramifications. And are you disappointed by the apparent loss of political impetus to tackle climate change? 
without political drive and community support for that drive, then we're not going to make massive progress in the short term or even in the medium term. The interest in this does seem to have waned, uh, both in the community and in amongst politicians. Thanks. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week when Andrew will be in the chair. All that's left for me now is to thank my studio guests, Jeremy Farrer and Andrew Jack, and also AAAS and Nadia Ramligan. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.